Hi, my name's Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. This is a podcast cutting open and dissecting everything to do with psychology, technology and our society. On September 13th, 1848, Phineas Gage, a foreman of a crew cutting a railroad bed in Cavendish, Vermont, was using a tamping iron to pack explosive powder into a hole. The powder detonated and the tamping iron shot upwards, penetrating Gage's left cheek, tearing into his brain and exiting through his skull, which landed several dozen feet away. He was blinded in his left eye, but he remained conscious and alert enough to tell a doctor that day what had happened. He may have survived the accident, but his personality and behavior saw a drastic change, which was reported by his doctor, John Martin Harlow, the doctor who treated him for a few months afterwards. According to Gage's friends, he was no longer Gage, Harlow wrote. The balance between his intellectual facilities and animal propensities no longer existed. He could not stick to plans, uttered the grossest of profanity, and showed little difference for his fellows. Now, we might not be handling explosives on a daily basis, and if you do, tweet us at the sociable because I want to hear what your job is. But we do face the threat of accidents and surprises in our health. However, life and technology have changed a lot since 1848, and we now have the means to better understand, examine, and treat injuries to the brain and our behavior. One example of this is the fascinating technology of neurofeedback, which will be the topic of today's show. To discuss this, I'm joined by two guests. My first guest is a writer, public speaker, and author of Stroke Forward, a book designed to help those who have suffered strokes and the people around them navigate the path ahead of them to a better life, Marsha Moran. After suffering a stroke herself, Marsha discovered neurofeedback and shares with us how it has impacted her life. In addition to Marsha, we are also joined by a professor of Georgetown University with over 290 publications in neuroscience and neuroethics, seven books, and 15 government white papers on neurotechnology, ethics, and biosecurity, Dr. James Giordano. James will be joining us to discuss how this technology works and who it can help. I hope you enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses' online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. So if we do want to get started, will you be able to uh, tell our listeners who you are and uh, explain a little bit about the work you do? So right now I'm getting my book out to readers. And the reason that I think that's important is because most stroke patients don't have an advocate. And so when I was in the hospital with my stroke, my husband was there. He had no idea what he needed to do. And I realized that most people, if they're in the hospital with a stroke, and they don't have an advocate, you don't have much help. So we tried to do the best we could every day, but he learned things along the way, day by day by day, and I thought that was not the way to do it. So I wrote a book about being an advocate, so if you're in the situation, you can go ahead and learn the basics rather than learning what he did, which was day by day by day. Mm -hmm. That was terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that 
I think that that's going to do a world of good, especially for people that don't know or have any understanding of what it's like, one, to have a stroke or for someone that you love to go through that experience. And one of the reasons why I was so keen to do this call with you is because it's something that I have no real understanding or idea about, if I'm being honest. I know that my grandfather had a stroke, but at the same time, that was when I was very, very young. Uh And I don't really recall it. And he passed away when I was very young. I think unrelated to that. But at the same time, other than that, I don't have any experience with it. And I was hoping um, that this call would obviously give me greater clarity on your experience. Yeah, if you you would be able to tell us perhaps a little bit about um, the stroke. So 87% of people have ischemic strokes, which means that they have a blood clot that forms somewhere in their body. It breaks free and it goes up to their brain. And for every minute that someone has a brain clot, they lose 1.9 million cells. So brain is time as the American Association, American Stroke Association says. 13% of people have hemorrhagic strokes. So that's when a blood vessel breaks in the brain and you bleed out. So my mother had a brain bleed. And I didn't even think about having a stroke, even though I should have because she had a brain bleed. My grandmother and great uncle also had strokes. And I don't know why, but when I had a stroke, I was totally dumbfounded. (laughs) Yeah. I guess most people don't think about them happening. Most people don't think about strokes happening for them. And the sad point is that strokes can happen to anyone at any age from when you're before you're born to your 80s. And sometimes there is nothing you can do to prevent it. Like mine, I had a, a clot in my left carotid artery. So my left carotid artery dissected and a blood clot formed. And then, for some reason, it broke away, and 1% to 2% of stroke patients have that. They called it a fluke. Most people have strokes because they have high blood pressure, or they have diabetes, or something like that. And those people, they say 80% of strokes could be not happening if people took care of themselves. Well, the problem is that most people really don't think about having a stroke until they have it. Whether they have high blood pressure, whether they have diabetes, they don't really think about strokes. And I don't think I would have ever thought about having a stroke, even though the signs were there. Hmm. Could you tell us about the stroke you suffered in 2014 and how it affected you? So... When I woke up that Sunday morning, I felt really odd. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would text my friend and tell her that I wasn't going to make breakfast. And I texted and I looked at it and I couldn't read the text, which I thought that was really weird. So I put the phone down, I rolled over to take a nap and I got the worst headache imaginable. And despite the pain, I fell asleep. The next time I woke up, I knew I was in real trouble because 
my whole right side was paralyzed. So I knew I either had to go up and find help or I would kind of give up. So I rolled out of bed and dragged myself across the carpet with my left hand side until I made it to the door, which was unfortunately closed. So I reached up and I can't tell you how many times before I finally snuck the door handle and I pulled it open. I took a quick break because I was sweaty, tired, probably very out of it. And I finally made my way down the hall where I totally ran out of gas. I just, I couldn't move. And I don't know what actually fell that day, but something went crash. My husband came up to see what was going on. He saw me and said, Marcia, are you okay? <laughs> and I looked at him and I, I said nothing. So he called 911. And when they got there, they rolled me into the ambulance. And that's all I remember. I lost consciousness at that point. So my things that were wrong with me is my left side was fine, but my right side was completely paralyzed. And in the hospital, I would say I was hemiparesic. So I got some movement back in my right side, but not much. I couldn't speak. I couldn't, well, swallowing was really hard for me. And I guess the most painful thing was probably my right shoulder. So my right shoulder was probably a nine, and it stayed a nine or an eight for probably two years. What do you mean by that? Why is it, sorry, what is a nine or what is what score is that? Okay, so when we go to the hospital, they ask you on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest, what's mm. your pain level? So I thought I knew what a 10 was before my stroke. I did not know. <laughs> oh. I discovered very early on that pain is just constant mm. and it was on such a high level that you just have to learn to deal with it and I don't know how other people deal with it but I just moved on every day and said I don't care what it takes I'm going to move you <laughs> mm. it's awful but the good news is that for me, the pain eventually went away. So I still have pain, but it's so minor that I just ignore it. Hmm. I have to say, I think that um, experience you describe of having that stroke, that was, is generally terrifying because that's a horrible situation to be in. It's almost you describing it ignites the same kind of fear I get that when I watch horror films, like that's <laughs> scary. <laughs> And of course, like, uh, you've given me real reason to be grateful, like in the sense of that kind of pain you went through sounds horrifying. I mean, I feel like a baby now for complaining about being stuck in quarantine <laughs> compared to, compared to that. But, um, yeah. I also like, you mentioned that it affected your, your, your speech, right? How did, um, how did things develop afterwards like not with regards to your shoulder but like uh, with regards to your speech like how did your the stroke affect you otherwise so my speech was interesting so the american aphasia association says that if you're not over the symptoms of your aphasia by the third month you probably have aphasia for life 
So I had four different speech therapists, and that was in the first year and a half. And they got me to the point where they couldn't do anything more for me. And I still had aphasia. So aphasia is the inability to speak. And some people don't know how to write, and some people also don't know how to read. Okay. I could read okay. <laughs> well, I say that. So I'd read, I understood what I was reading, I closed the book and I completely forgot. <laughs> wow. So my aphasia was Broca's aphasia, which is on the left side of your head, right be before your ear. So I could understand what everybody was telling me. I could know exactly what I wanted to say back to them, and I couldn't speak. It's really weird. Mm. I learned different words I could say in the place of the words I wanted to say, so they were short words. And I was really frustrated. Mm. So I looked around for a place that could maybe help me, and I found kind of two. The first place was laser therapy. I went to the doctor and I said, I've had aphasia for two years now. And I wondered if this laser could do anything for me. And he said, I don't know, but we can try. So I went to him for my trial. He put a laser in, um, I guess you'd call it a wand or something. Mm -hmm. And he took about five minutes and during that he asked me to do the cross call which is you lift your left knee and right head at the same time and then you switch out with the right knee left arm mm -hmm. and I felt really foolish but I did it anyway <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed that I could actually speak better Excellent. so I kept going to see him and I did speak better but I wasn't non-aphasic, so I still had aphasia. So I was still looking for something that could help me get better. And I ran into a doctor three and a half years later. It's actually a doctor that I'd seen before. And he had a new therapy that was called neurofeedback. Mm -hmm. He told me about it. And he said, go back home, look it up. This is where you want to go. So I looked it up and I said, this is amazing. It says that it helped 85% of traumatic brain injury survivors. So I kept looking at different things. I read books and all sorts of things. And I said, okay, this seems real. I've got to give it a try. Mm -hmm. So I went in and I tried it out for the first time. So he puts leads on your uh, head. So it got two positive, two negatives and a ground. Mm -hmm. And it's hooked up to the computer and he turned it on. And I felt nothing. And I could see my brain waves going across the screen. I'm going, okay, this is interesting. I'm not feeling anything. Is he giving me just a load and I'm taking this? Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing is that I felt euphoric afterwards. And mm -hmm. I spoke better. This is kind of cool. I'm actually speaking better. It took 16 sessions. <laughs> and I'm now speaking the way I did after the 16th session. It's wonderful. Fantastic. So so you haven't had any sessions after that. You had those 16 sessions and I had, then... I had one session afterward. 
so about three or four months after my 16 sessions, I had a tune-up, and that okay. was it. And when was that? How long ago was that? Um, I started my sessions in August of 2017, so it was late fall to early winter of that year. So wow. 2017, maybe 2018. That's really inspiring because yeah. I think one of the things about most treatments is the idea of you have to constantly keep doing them if it's like some kind of remedy or, or any kind of prescription. But the fact that you've managed to do this through a series of sessions and right. that it's long lasting, that's so fantastic from um, a solution. The fact that it has that ability to last so long. Right. But I'd love to know, though, do you see any drawbacks to this technology? And if so, how could this technology be improved, do you think? So I don't see any drawbacks to the neurofeedback I had. And I think that one of the most important things to understand is that it's non-operant. So that means that you sit there and you actually do nothing. There is some feedback or neurofeedback that is operant and that's where you sit at the computer and you try to make the screen grow brighter or you try to move a dot around. That is not what I had. I had that operant. So I don't know what it is. They suggested that it's like you're having a computer and it is frozen in place. So you turn it off and turn it on. That's what it's like to them. And it was, I think, a miracle to me. So the amount of electricity that you get during um, the stimulation is one one hundredth of a AAA battery. It's that low. <laughs> Not going to kill you then. <laughs> no electric chair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would also be interested to know, like, what is the accessibility and availability for this, which you've come across? Like, for example, are there many people that practice this or is this something like you're, you're going to find probably like one doctor per state with this? And also, is it an expensive treatment, if I may ask? Sure. So it's varied. So my state, Virginia, has one person. <laughs> <laughs> the place it was developed was California. And I looked on a website and it was like a hundred in the LA and San Diego area. <laughs> That's all right then. So it depends on where you are. The cost is about a hundred dollars per session. It is not paid by insurance. But I think that $1,600 for me is not much. If I'm thinking about for a lifetime, it costs you $1,600 and you get your speech back. Hmm. You know, that's really yeah. the way I'm looking at it. I'd make the exact same choice. I would, yeah, hands down, do the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah that's definitely worth it. My last question to you, what I'd really like to know is what advice would you give to your former self before going through neurofeedback or even to your, your former self, like just after the stroke, like what advice would you have to, to yourself then? I would remind myself that the only way you get better is to try every single day. So no matter what the exercises are, you have to do them. No matter how difficult it is to find a solution, you have to try every single day. And 
I was lucky I found a solution. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say I'm I'm really pleased this story has a happy ending. <laughs> and a lot of the time when I do this podcast, it can be quite bleak because we we look at topics where technology is impacting our society perhaps not in a great way so maybe like social media is causing more sensations of loneliness yeah. or foreign nations are releasing like cyber attacks on other foreign nations and causing yeah. mayhem so it's really nice whenever i have uh, a guest on the show and we discuss a positive topic and of course your story isn't without like hardship but at the same time i really admire your perspective and right. um, your strength and the fact that there is a technology which clearly is um, so fantastic to hear that it's helped you and to ask like do you see any drawbacks and you're like no like this really did help it's yeah. uh it's wonderful to hear yeah so if you don't mind i would like to tell people how to get there yeah definitely so it's microcurrent microcurrentneurofeedback.com and it is a great i think in my mind at least it's a great technology. I think the more people that know about this, the better, because clearly it's helped you, and hopefully yeah. it can certainly help other people that, that need the help as well, just yeah. like you did. So you said you, you, you're releasing a book. If people want to find that book or learn more about it, or just in general learn more about the work you're doing or follow you, do you have a website or is there social media you can point people to? Yes, so my book is called Stroke Forward. So my website is strokeforward.com, and you can find me on social media. I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm on and Twitter. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, and it's been a real pleasure to hear your story and a real pleasure to just hear a, a happy ending for that story. Thank you so much, Sam. James. Would you be able to kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I'm Dr. James Giordano. I'm a professor in the departments of neurology and biochemistry, and I'm the chief of the Neuroethics Studies Program at Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. My ongoing research over the past three decades has examined those ways that current and emerging areas of neuroscientific methods and tools can be employed in various aspects of medicine, such as neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry, broadly in public health, and also in public life. And very often how we can adapt these tools, the more we learn about the brain, to make these tools far more specific and far more precise. And what are the ethical, legal, and social issues that arise from and in the use of these various tools and techniques in their various applications? Awesome. Well, great to have you on. I don't think I could have picked a, a more suitable guest to help us understand neurofeedback today. And I would love to do exactly that. If you are able to explain to us what neurofeedback is, how it works, and essentially like how it can help stroke victims and other victims, which maybe require this technology. Neurofeedback is, a, is an interesting tool that grew out of the biofeedback technology. In biofeedback, what we're doing is we're training an individual to utilize certain evident cues that are either presented by a computer or by some other monitoring device and using those cues to regulate their physiology, change their body temperature, change their level, level of what we call sympathetic outflow, in other words, their level of anxiety or agitation. And we were using a whole host of peripheral biomarkers and signals, 
something called a galvanic skin response, for example. In other words, how the, the skin conductance changes as a consequence of certain types of sweating and the release of certain chemicals into the skin, heart rate, respiratory rate, etc. What neurofeedback seeks to do is it, it takes that process and really focuses it on the, the activities of the central nervous system in general and more specifically the brain. And as we become more sophisticated in understanding how the brain works and become ever more capable in utilizing assessment tools, what we're able to do is link these methods to some of the assessment neurotechnologies. And the one that is most routinely used is some form of electroencephalographic EEG-based neurofeedback. Now, in a clinical milieu, what that entails is that there's a, a clinical-grade EEG monitor that the individual will use. Characteristically, that's anywhere between 12 and up to 225 electrode leads that are placed onto the scalp in a little cap. And this then provides a fairly robust EEG signal, a signal of the electrical activities, the summated electrical activities, of the most superficial layer of the brain known as the cortex. But what the cortex is really transmitting is not just its own activity, but the sum of the activity of a whole host of brain nodes and networks that are contributory to the cortical activity and are regulated by cortical activity. So it's really a measure of brain tone, if you will. If I could give you an example, think of a football stadium and your two favorite football teams are playing. And what you do is you hang microphones at various points around the football stadium to hear the relative cheers of certain groups as one team scores and makes a great player the other. You're not hearing one particular voice. You may not even necessarily hear what the group is saying, but you're certainly able to assess the amount of relative sound and therefore the relative excitement of those different regions of the stadium. EEG works the same way. So it's a good, albeit somewhat crude measure of brain activity. Well, the nice part about brain activity is that we can also classify brain activity into discrete patterns of activity that represent higher or lower levels of activation and or excitation, focus, vigilance, or relaxation. And we can also then codify those activities across the brain surface, what brain areas are, are doing what. Now, by linking that to neurofeedback, where the individual is then utilizing an image on a computer screen or some other form of, of feedback, this an objective feedback mechanism, uh, an image, a song that keeps playing, when the desired pattern of brain activity is sensed by the EEG, that feedback, that signal that is transmitted to the wearer of the EEG net network is then transmitted. In other words, a perfect example would be we, we have a, an individual's favorite song or we have a picture that the individual likes. And as we begin to coach that individual into using their brain a particular pattern through means of meditative exercises, cognitive exercises, or certain behaviors, what they're seeing on the screen or what they're hearing in their earphones becomes that which is desired. Their favorite song begins to play and plays louder and more durably the more their brain is in that electrically active state or the more the image on the screen becomes the image they desire to see, a flower blooming, a beautiful scene. So what they're essentially doing is they're using a feedback mechanism, something they see, something they hear, something they may smell, to control the overall activity of the brain. It literally is sort of a closed loop where the brain is working to control itself by means of things of the individual whose body that brain is embodied and nested in, 
senses certain things and to maintain that level of sensation and perception, they're able to keep their brain in that brain state. And we can also use that as a form of operant conditioning where we're using reinforcements where the individual then literally weans themselves off of the use of this external device, a computer image, a sound playing through headphones, to be able to get a better, quote, feeling of what it is like when their brain is working in a particular state of network and node activity. And this then becomes a form of neuroautogenic training. So we can literally wean the individual off the neurofeedback device once we get the desired outcomes of brain activity and their representative tokens of cognition, emotion, and behavior. Awesome. I mean, it sounds incredibly complex still, but at the same time, obviously, evidently useful, especially in the case of um, Marsha, my other guest. Uh, she was a stroke victim, but I'd be interested to know if this helps others. Like, what kind of um, inflictions would this be able to help, or what kind of issues would this be able to help with other than stroke patients? You know, neurofeedback has been and continues to be used with increasing regularity in a variety of different clinical contexts, not only in neurology and rehabilitative medicine, but also in psychiatry, in various forms of geriatric and pediatric medicine, because what it allows a clinician to do is to gain access to brain activity in a non-invasive way. Now, we really don't understand those of us who work in neuroscience and neurology, exactly how consciousness occurs in the living brain. That's to say, we don't know if the brain is a box that captures it, an antenna in some way that brings it in, or a generator, or some combination of all of the above. But what we do understand is that there are relatively discrete patterns of activity within the various nodes and networks of the brain that seem to be involved and or contributory to a whole host of our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. When an individual incurs some form of neurological damage, whether through head injury, through stroke, or through some other pathology, and or if an individual is having some abnormality or some difficulties in the functional aspects of their neurology that might be evidenced, for example, in anxiety, certain types of depression, various forms of other psychiatric disease, impulse control, addictive behavior, etc., Understanding how the brain is functioning and the patterns of brain function during those periods of relative dysfunction or abnormality and how the brain should be functioning or what an ideal model of brain function might be or getting that individual to perform somewhat better on a behavioral task, a motor task, for example, movement, a cognitive task, an emotional task, and then registering what that pattern of brain activity is like provides, if you will, a window to and an access to controlling that individual's pattern of brain activity that therefore would be contributory to the desired outcomes and thought, feeling, and behaviors. So the, the beauty of utilizing neurofeedback is that it helps us to identify what particular EEG-based patterns are representative of this individual's functional and or non-functional or impaired functionality in the neurologic and or psychiatric domains. And then it allows us to work with that individual directly as an arbiter of their own functionality to change those aberrant, dysfunctional or disabled patterns into patterns of brain activity that are contributory towards more viable patterns of neurological function, 
behavioral and motor function, cognitive capability, and or desired emotionality. That's awesome. I mean, to me, in a very basic term, it sounds like almost a software upgrade for the brain. Well, you know, it, that's a nice way of looking at it because what you're really doing is in, in, some, in some ways, what you're, you're trying to do is, I'm not going to say rewire, but allow some functional redirections of various nodes and networks within the brain to be able to create the desired outcome. And what we understand is that very often the brain can execute and exhibit some forms of functional, what we call plasticity. In other words, if certain areas of the brain may be impaired, functionally, structurally, or both, the brain's representative function, one of its core functions, is as a communicative and relational network. And so what it may do is pass those communication capabilities to adjacent nodes and networks in the system to be able to compensate for the, the loss of certain aspects of the components. So in other words, it's sort of like saying one hand taking over where the other hand is failing or becomes less incapable, and therefore both hands tend to work cooperatively together. Of course, there are going to be limits, I mean, depending on the extent of brain injury, brain damage, and disruption of those nodes and networks. Neurofeedback, just like any other form of neuropsychiatric intervention, may not work. However, what we're learning is that the more we understand about the brain, the more we may be able to fine tune, tailor, be more precise and more personalized in the types of neurofeedback that we're developing for individual users. And the other issue is we can then link or yoke that neurofeedback to more advanced, more sophisticated, more precise forms of assessment. So although EEG provides a relatively easy and very accessible form of being able to perceive and therefore translate superficial electrical activity of the brain and those patterns that are contributory to certain thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, we can also link neurofeedback to various forms of neuroimaging, such as functional magnetic resonance imaging and or some forms of tract tracing in real time. And then we can use the neuroimaging as a basis upon which to then model a corresponding EEG signal. So we're using one thing as a biomarker for the other. And in this way, we're dialing up the specificity, if you will, to what we're trying to affect and improve through neurofeedback. Awesome. Well, James, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing this knowledge. If people want to keep up with what you're doing, uh, is there any social media or website that you want to point them to? Oh, sure, absolutely. They can take a look at my faculty webpage, and that's at uh, www.georgetown.edu. And just type in my name, Dr. James Giordano, and they'll come across me. And if they want to get in touch with me directly, they can certainly feel free. Your, your listeners are, in fact, a good audience for me as well, and I'm happy to help them. And they can reach me directly at james.giordano, G-I-O-R-D-A-N-O, at georgetown.edu. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you liked it. 
And as always, you can let us know what you think. Uh, tweet at us at, at The Sociable. Additionally, you can follow us wherever you get your podcast: Spotify, iTunes, Overcast, Podcast Addict, Podbean, all these places and more. And you can also go to sociable.co to go check out articles that we produce on similar topics just like this. And you'll also be able to find all our episodes up there as well. I hope you have a great day and I hope you join us again next time. Thank you.